1: University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, folks. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. I am Emily Allen, your host for this episode. Our guest for today is Dr. Candace Bailey, author of Unbinding Gentility Women Making Music in the 19th Century South, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2021. Southern women of all classes, races, and walks of life practiced music during and after the Civil War. Candace Bailey examines the history of Southern women through the lens of these musical pursuits, uncovering the ways that music's transmission, education, circulation, and repertory help us understand its meaning in the women's culture of the time. Bailey pays particular attention to the space between music as an ideal accomplishment, part of how people expected women to perform gentility and a real practice what women actually did. At the same time, her ethnographic reading of Binder's volumes, letters, and diaries, and a wealth of other archival material informs new and vital interpretations of women's places and Southern culture. A fascinating collective portrait of women's artistic and personal lives, unbinding gentility challenges entrenched assumptions about 19th century music, and the experiences of the Southern women who made it. And our guest, Dr. Candace Bailey, is professor of music at North Carolina Central University. So welcome back to the New Books Network, Dr. Bailey. Thank you. Yeah, looking forward to our talk. So before we dive into the book, can you tell our listeners more about yourself?
0: I am um, a native North Carolinian, and I've lived in North Carolina all my life except for when I was a Fulbright student in the UK. I went to Duke and began my musicology career as a specialist in English keyboard music of the 17th century. But I started moving uh, into women and music in the southern United States in the early 2000s, part as a, partly as an um, interest in doing some just family genealogy work. And wondering about my own great-grandmothers and what they might have done, because I know that at least one of them was um, given a piano in her father's will. So that's kind of how I start got started in uh, women and music in the South. Uh, other than that, I am an avid gardener and love to travel
1: and have a few cats um, and love to cook. So like that's that's me. Fantastic. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> like you have a, a lot of well-rounded interests, especially to cats, which is awesome. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I thought that's really interesting that you kind of got into it from your own genealogy. I'm always kind of interested in exactly that, like what's kind of like the scholar's personal ties to a topic. So I think that's really fascinating that you found through your own family history, kind of a pivot um, into that. So that's really cool. And then, of course, you know, kind of thinking about the larger process towards this book. How did what was the, you know, process for Unbinding Gentility like, you know, what was the journey like from your previous book that you talked about on here, Charleston Bells Abroad? So what was that kind of like transition from that project to this one like?
0: Well, I I tell you, um, this book has been in um, writing stages for 10 years. It's been really difficult to bring all of the information I had from so many disparate areas and and women from different backgrounds and so forth together. It took me 10 years to get my head around um, how to organize this book. What did I really want to say? And it's almost as if I wrote Charleston Bells Abroad as an aside. Um, I, I noticed I have so much research data that the Charleston collection just kind of went together in one thing by itself. I could deal with that. And comparatively, that was a much easier book to write. The Unbinding Gentility book took me forever to settle on just how to organize it. I began thinking I would do it kind of as cultural geography and and organize it by state, each each state being a chapter. But then um, that was not satisfactory, and uh, I thought through the process more, and what really came to my mind uh, as one of the principal driving forces behind this book was my first book on women and music in the South was um, Music in the Southern Bell. And I talked about mostly elite women in that book. And my research showed that it was women from across the entire spectrum that participated in what I call scientific music, being able to read music and and play the music associated with reading music um, or sing it. And finding a way to organize and think about and fit all of these different women under this umbrella because they were all doing the same thing in different ways took, quite a while to, to
1: figure out oh my goodness I could tell too I was like wow she's covering a lot <laughs> which was I, I was impressed with um but I think like the way you ended up organizing it worked really well um because I could see what you're talking about like how kind of even within each chapter you do kind of like sometimes depending on what section you know still Kind of situate us in a certain place but then it didn't seem like it mm-hmm. was that you know hard to go to a different like through line so i mean i think it ended up working really well i know that must have been thank you yeah <laughs> yeah well I, in some cases you know i
0: i would like the reader to kind of put themselves in say alabama early on early in the century is what i mean and then see what happens with some of these same people, say, around 1860, and then see what happens with these people after the war. So, you know, to me, that's one aspect that was important to bring out. But then I also wanted not to just stay with one area, but to show how things were so different. It's mean, kind of a big geographical area and different um, means driving the economy and different populations. And yet, you know, how how to talk about music and women with all, within all of these, um, I felt like I couldn't just limit it to a few geographical places, although some, as you point out, do stand out.
1: Yeah, and it gives a reader a chance to, if they want to know more, maybe kind of, you know, pursue more about a specific person, too. So there's a lot to kind of, like, that one could pull out um, within all this, so... Yeah, it is interesting though that you are able to trace all those threads, and of course, you know, across the book, there's obviously with the title a key word to talk about that idea of gentility. So, how do you see that carrying into these different women's music making practices, and you know, going back to the material culture side of things? Can you talk about the binders, volumes, and all of that?
0: Sure. Um, well, as I was just saying. To me, there was, obviously, all of these women are looking to music for something. Being able to play or sing music from notation meant something to women. Um, and it dawned on me, eventually, um, it, it came, became obvious, that all of this has to do with something running through women's culture that said, this is something you should do. This is something that means something. This is a way for you to... You know, place yourself within the culture, and the word gentility um, came up repeatedly. Most obviously in Emily Thornwell's *Lady's Guide to Perfect Gentility* publication. Um, But and so I I started thinking about gentility as not just um, one class of people. You know, the genteel folk. Sometimes you hear people talk about, but. What did it really mean, and what did it mean to different people at different times, so that you can have a poor farmer's daughter in Eastern North Carolina and a very wealthy governor's daughter in Georgia and a, a free black woman in Natchez, Mississippi, all playing the same music or singing the same music? Um, so that's kind of what i how I came to gentility, looking at um, a lot of non-music evaluations of women's culture and of American culture in general. And of course, with gentility, you have these objects that signify that you are genteel, even without hearing or speaking about them, just having the physical object with a way of showing um, your pursuit of uh, cultural aspiration and, Binder's volumes, which are uh, bound collections of printed sheet music, usually, for the period that I'm looking at, it's usually printed, although there are some manuscript um, books and some manuscript pieces inserted in sometimes. But these tell us quite a bit about a woman's physical um, space. They tell us about where she lived, where she bought her music, where she had her music bound, what types of music she Performed. Um, sometimes we get uh, writings about friendships, uh, courtships, even notations of when friends died or, or mothers died. One volume I found had widows' weeds. Uh, when some of the pair, um, things in, that had been impressed in the back, you find flowers uh, that had been pressed into them. So they they represent more than just the popular styles in, say, 1845. They show us perhaps that women in Edenton, North Carolina in 1860 were was playing music, that was published in 1845. Um, maybe, you know, so why would they be having something that's 15 years old? Or, you know, all kinds of questions that you can um, develop from these physical objects beyond the ways we have looked at them in the past. I think they're a much underused reference resource, and I am working to try and come up with some sort of national database of these so that people can use them more fully.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. I know I definitely want to look at some of those um, because that's amazing how you've gleaned that much information from that. And like you're saying, it's probably not something people have thought about. As an approach um, before, so that's yeah. really interesting.
0: Yeah, they're uh, they're really informative. Um, I recently did a Library of Congress lecture, uh, looking at some of the binders volumes there from the Civil War, and the thing is, they they don't contain what if you think about Civil War music, they don't have it. So, what does that tell Right. Me? You know, so.
1: Yeah, and like. Kind of looking at the people behind all of this, right? You know, part one, you kind of, as you were getting at a few minutes ago, there's all kinds of circumstances in which these women were, you know, making music in the antebellum period. So can you talk about who some of these people were and kind of elaborate maybe on some of the different circumstances that they were performing studying music?
0: Sure. Um, well, there are um, the. People have often, when they write about music in the United States, particularly women and parlor music, they talk about the middle class. So there's a lot of women who fall in the middle class, but then, you know, how do you define the middle class? So one of the things that I, I talk about throughout the book is, is some of these specific circumstances. So Kate Berry in Nashville is the daughter of a, a wealthy man who owns a bookstore, and he his bookstore is kind of like a men's club, apparently uh, very nice interior where you could go and smoke cigars and have a drink and and read and so forth. but he supplies his daughter with some really um vibrant music covers, perhaps because he has you know access to these things and so we and Kate Berry wrote all over her music, and so we can learn a lot about her, we know you know where she lives we know. Uh, who her family was, and she kind of represents um, what people expect to find, I think, when they're talking about women in the parlor. But then there are other people, um, such as uh, Anna Johnson, who is a free Black woman, the daughter of um, two former slaves, um, who uh, had music lessons in Natchez, Mississippi, who Studied in New Orleans briefly when she was a very young girl, possibly living with her mother's sister while she was there. We know that the family had a piano and other instruments. The family home is now a national park, the William Johnson House in Natchez, Mississippi. She had quite a bit of music: um, two binders volumes and six boxes of unbound music. Now in the library at LSU and she's playing some of the same exact music that uh, Eva Eve, the daughter of a wealthy white planter near Augusta, Georgia, is playing. And these are uh, Ferdinand Bayer's large and, and quite a difficult arrangements of Meyerbeer's opera Le Huguenot as well as as other um, popular pieces at the time. And then we find uh, women who are um, music teachers, uh, music uh, professionals, in other ways. I'm fascinated by Sarah Smith, who lived in Columbia, Tennessee. She came from Georgia. I mean, excuse me, she came from Virginia to Tennessee and worked at the Columbia Female Institute in the Athenaeum. But when she arrived in the 1830s. Uh, The newspaper uh, and then the subsequent uh, catalog for the Columbia Female Institute talk about how she has connections with Erard in Paris and has uh, thousands of pieces of music that she's making available for her students to learn. Or Harriet Whitaker in North Carolina, who's the daughter of a piano maker. One of his pianos is now in the governor's mansion in Raleigh. And she sets up her own business in Wilmington. North Carolina. Uh, this is all before the Civil War. Um, and then there's Mariah Kow- Kowalewski, who came to the U.S. from Ireland, uh, had a, what seems to be a turbulent marriage uh, with a Dr. Peter Kowalewski. She followed him to Pensacola and ran a singing school there. She then moved to Mobile and became organist at the cathedral, and after the Civil War, she's credited with uh, running the summer concert series, bringing in instrumental music, and putting on operas that she is responsible for. So, so quite a variety of women um, from all sorts of backgrounds populate the book and help us get a sense of the real practice of music in um the south throughout the most of the 19th century.
1: Yeah, and I think that was amazing kind of like you were talking with, saying at the beginning of the talk about how you're still looking at these different sites but at the at, around the same time how different their circumstances were, right? Like not necessarily completely generalizing um about all of them and providing that yeah. level of nuance. Um,
0: right, because um, what passes in um, rural central North Carolina is not going to pass in Charleston, right? Among the elite, you know, these are very different societies, and we we need to recognize that when we talk about music in society.
1: Yeah, and I I think I remember you saying something about this. Um towards the beginning of the book but can you talk maybe a little bit about how especially for these women of color maybe some of the challenges that you faced with that research like where where did you have to work to kind of bring those to light more like you know how did you navigate that
0: that is um an area where i hope to inspire more people to look for evidence because i think we have a assumed as musicologists that um, Black women, um, Indigenous women, women from the Caribbean, women of, of mixed backgrounds, did not participate in this scientific music practice. And yet, I have found enough evidence to suggest, oh, yes, they did. And if they did, then where is their music? Right. Where right. are their collections? The only one I've been able to find is the Johnson collection. Um, and I think that with more people becoming interested in this topic, we will eventually find them. That's, that's one of the, the key things I hope this database I'm trying to get together will help us find is that by looking into who owned volumes when we can identify that, we'll find them. I don't know if you know, I, I, because of um, the history and the way that um, archives and libraries in the past have treated uh, collections and um, just, uh, I'm sorry, materials that have come to them or not, uh, let's, let me figure out, I'm not saying this very well. <laughs> let me try again. How the libraries tend to have been places where wealthy and prestigious white families have deposited their um, memorabilia, there has yes. been less emphasis um, or less interest historically in um, what, say, Black families might have had. And also, because of that, been a, a concomitant mistrust of what would happen to their materials. Um, And who knows, they may be in families, they may be in archives in HBCUs that have yet to have funding to fully realize the potential of their holdings. Um, It's just going to take some people going and assuming that it's there and then, you know, finding it rather than assuming it didn't exist.
1: Exactly. Like kind of questioning the archival history in that way and what that and that'll be interesting to see too how it might further shift like these narratives that you've already started getting at in this book um about what women's music making in the south looked like right like exactly maybe, i mean
0: because like you know i i point out that we have evidence of enslaved of an enslaved woman having piano lessons in charleston very early um we have uh evidence that. The daughters of an enslaved woman, which of course means they themselves would have been enslaved, um, having piano lessons or having music lessons in Georgia and then inheriting the bulk of the father's um, estate, uh, Amanda America Dixon, is who I'm speaking about here. Um, what, you know, what are, what are the stories of, of their music? Is their music somewhere? Is, is her collection of piano stuff somewhere? You know? Right. What in might north. have happened? And, and did it go north in some of the migrations that happened later in the like, early 20th century? We're talking about the great migrations north. Um, I wonder if some of their collections have not ended up in um, some of the larger institutions in the north. And we just have to go look for them.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I hadn't even thought about like them maybe being tucked away elsewhere that would make sense too. Um, so
0: many of the collections in general are still in boxes. I, I can't tell you how many um, libraries and archives I've been to where they say, oh yeah, we got some of those, they're back here in a box, just you know, go look <laughs> yourself or or let me bring that out or, oh, I didn't know we had this. Um, There've even been some state institutions, I won't mention any by name, where they've either said, "Oh." Uh, no, we don't have any of those. Oh, wait a minute! I found one. Would you like me to send it to you? Because they do oh it. Oh my gosh! Or that I knew that they were at this another place, and um, after I left, the uh, librarian wrote back. You know what? We found all those books you were talking about. Let me know when you're coming back, <laughs> um, because they found them. And, and you know, these are potentially very informative books about music education and at a prestigious school. So. You know, I think I hope to bring people's attention
1: to these resources. Yeah, and that database that you're working on, I think, would be a great, you know, alternative as well, it sounds like, um, in terms of making sure they're not just shoved in a box somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, but... Speaking of which, going back to kind of like some of your findings and all of that, right, Um, can you talk, you started talking a little bit about some of the, you know, repertory that was found in this, but can you talk a little bit more about that, like what kind of music these women were performing? I know you, you know, in Chapter 4, for instance, talk a lot about the importance of them choosing to perform opera, for instance. Yeah, this is something
0: um, that I would like to enter into the, Um, the way we teach music history in the United States much more fundamentally. Um, I don't think we get quite enough um, appreciation for how much Italian and French, French Grand Opera was uh, being heard in American homes, on the stage, everywhere. Um, Yes, they sang a lot of ballads, they sang um, pieces from English ballad opera, um, such as uh, uh Bohemian Girl," such as "Then You'll Remember Me." Um, yes, they sang "I Dreamt That I Dwelt in Marble Halls," but they also sang "Casta Diva." It's it's everywhere, and if you look at the standard books uh, that talk about this period, they don't really, I don't think, bring to the fore the persistence and the ubiquitousness of the ubiquity of this um, Italian bel canto, I'm talking about uh, Rossini, Donizetti, Bellini, and then Verdi, uh, and as well as Meyerbeer and Aubert and Dieu in uh, American music, the, the, the soundscape of, of what people in the United States. there's uh, a lot of dance music, a lot of music that is derived from operas that has been made into dance form so that people could dance to these pieces, you know, in the parlor. That was a very common pastime. There are huge piano uh, transcriptions or arrangements of entire operas or like all the best hits from the opera. You know, you can think of a CD of, you know, the, the number one hits from Bellini's Norma. And you hear these throughout these piano pieces, some of which are 15, 20 pages long or more. And then you get them in simpler versions as well. So that if you know that your friend is playing this piece and um, this opera and and you can't quite manage that, there's a simpler version where you can still say, oh yes, I have played uh, Verdi's uh, Traviata or, or, or whatever it might be. So there's a variety of that. And then I think another area that we need to recognize more fully is the amount of German leader that is heard in the South, at least, uh, probably in the North as well, uh, during the 19th century. Schubert seems to be quite popular, even if it's a limited number of pieces. Uh, Franz Apt is a composer that we don't hear much these days. But his "When the Swallows Homeward Fly" very, very popular, and I'm not the first person to point these out. Um, back in I think 1979, Charles Ham points these out in his book "Yesteryears," but or "Yesterdays" um, with chapter titles. And yet, when we read about American music history in the 19th century, we still get Stephen Foster. Stephen Foster, and Minstrelsy, and it would go on to something else. And yes, these existed, but they weren't nearly as much in the public's ear as Casta Diva or When the Swallows Homeward Fly.
1: Yeah, it, it sounds like you've, you know, definitely for sure, like in that section, complicated all that. And I think it would be a great resource for a uh, you know American music history course or something um, for people to even work through that part. Um, and think about that, and pursue some of those rabbit holes more. Like I was saying before, uh, that you present in the book, um, which would be really interesting. And then, you know, the next part, part three, it's where you kind of get at what you were saying earlier about scientific music and whatnot, and the idea of like these professional roles that these southern women took on. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, like some <clears> of the different positions that these women held?
0: Yes. Um, One of the the, um, interesting findings, I think, uh, is that we have women who are professional organists much earlier than people who've talked about this, written about this, published on this in the past have um, realized. We have women being paid to both sing in the choir and play the organ at churches all over the south before the civil war and yet um, for some reason this seems to have not been uh, recognized in current research in in music history or music pedagogy um, what they were doing and i find it incredible to think about women being in charge of uh, music in churches because that does put them in a certain sense in in a power role that is not Traditionally, or a public space that is not traditionally thought of um, or allowed for women in the antebellum period, in particular. So, that's one of the places that I find uh, to be really interesting. Another is I don't think we have quite uh, gotten as deep as we need to with women who were professional musicians and their lives. You know, Kitty Preston has done quite a bit with. Um, women who were involved with running opera companies and uh, later on in the century. But I'm fascinated with women who were uh, instrumental in getting performances, what I call civic performances of music together because often they would have been telling men, they would have been instructing men, which is a inverted power relationship as we understand the 19th century. But that's another one. And then as I mentioned earlier, women who were involved in selling music in various ways, um, particularly having their own shops, not just as teachers. And of course, there were a lot of women who were teachers uh, teaching music, a lot of men. We, um, there's probably a lot more men than we realize early on teaching, and then that kind of flips after the Civil War because it, women as teachers becomes a very acceptable way to have a career. But there were a lot of women who were supporting themselves as music teachers before the Civil War. That have fascinating lives. I talk about one, Carrie Holt, who is from Montreal, and she left an autobiography that is a fascinating read of moving from uh, first to North Carolina from Canada, then to South Carolina, then to Florida, and then she spends some time in Cuba, and she ends up in Peru. You know, <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> you know. How fascinating is that? Very. <laughs> think about it. You know, and, and she talks about, you know, arranging things for her students. So she's doing, you know, a l- little bit of composition as well as teaching music. So w- there's a lot we have yet to learn um, about music as, as a means of mobility uh, so that women who wanted to move around could and uh, women... Who supported themselves, not just supported themselves until they got married, but supported themselves after they got married, or they didn't marry at all.
1: Yeah, have you found in all of that maybe what the women, like what these women found for themselves in these p- positions? Like, did they find were some strategically doing this as a way of mobility, or were some like you know did, were they satisfied in these positions? What kind of joy? were they finding in these different jobs? You know, like what was, you know, did you get any kind of sense of their thoughts on their positions?
0: No, not, I I didn't. And I think that's partly because, I I I mentioned a while ago that uh, it's the large prestigious wealthy families who left their materials to libraries that we can go and look at. And the women who are um, involved in these, quotidian musical activities as a means of support, probably had less time to sit down and write in their diaries. And if they did, they didn't make it into the, shall we say, the final cut of what libraries have included, if they even went there. Um, So that what we get in diaries and letters is often the rich elite folks. Right. isolated differences, but the women who were involved in uh, music as a profession, I have been able to get their information more, um, particularly from looking at newspaper accounts and newspaper advertisements of their um, performances, um, people remembering having studied with them, that sort of thing, more so than uh, what they themselves had to say about their lives. Although one that I think really stands out, I will say, is, is Maria Kowalewski, because she seems to have um, disposed of two husbands. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, her her life is fascinating to me. She, as I mentioned, she married Peter Kowalewski, and he left Ireland without her. And she followed, which kind of suggests that there may have been some tension early on. And then they divorced in 1850. And she was Catholic, um, but they divorced in 1850. And I thought, well, he must have been some, you know, just horrible man and da-da-da. Well, then I read his <laughs> obituaries, and he actually was a very esteemed uh, doctor in Mobile and did a lot of good in um, the city. So uh, it's not that he was, you know, a, a cad who met her when she was a teenager and, you know, whatever. Uh, it wasn't that way at all. He apparently... Was a kind and loving man, and uh, he apparently raised their sons, which is not so surprising, considering that in the South, in the Antebellum period, that if a woman did divorce, the children went with the father. Um, but then she married again, a man from the Swiss Council, and it seems that he drowned in the during the Civil War, but she collected uh, his uh, not pension, but um, the remains of his estate, but then she went back to using her first married name. Um, so you know, you, you kind of have to wonder about this woman. I would love to find her letters or her diaries or more about her her personal life because she did so much that was counter to what we think about women doing. That I, I'd love to know more about her.
1: Yeah, I know she uh, was definitely, from what I've seen, for sure, well respected. In the area. And you're right, like, our first husband was part of some, I think, medical association or something. Mm -hmm. He was like a big guy. And that is fascinating (laughs) that she uh, got through all that somehow. That's really interesting. Um, And hopefully, one day, it'd be interesting to see outside of what you're saying, like those formal libraries and archives, what people have maybe in personal collections or. Yeah, something else that's tucked away in a box in a corner that no one realized was there, kind of thing.
0: Well, yeah, that's uh, part of the um the challenge too is is a lot of families have held on to um, women's ephemera, women's memorabilia. Yeah, you know, we we they deposited the men's letters and things in the libraries, but you know, I still got grandmother's books. I got my great grandmother's music books. You know etc. And finding those materials or people. And people, I think, when they know you're looking for them, are eager to share them. But they don't necessarily know that we're looking for them. Oh, It's it's a conundrum.
1: Yeah, and I just find it fascinating that one of the through lines in our conversation so far has kind of just been like this question of what has the bias been of you know, institutional archival practices or whatever. So I think that's something um, that would be interesting for people to think about with their projects and that you've navigated, you know, with this project too. Um, Yeah. So that's really interesting. And you were just talking about this a minute ago, you know, with the one gentleman, you know, drowning in the Civil War. So speaking of the Civil War, shifting forward a little bit in time here, Um, Can you talk a little bit more about what life was like for these women musicians at this time? What was life like in the different places in the South during the Civil War for them?
0: Do you mean the professional or the amateur or all of them? All of them. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, A number of professional women, such as Mariah Kowalewski, went North. Uh, Carrie Holt went north. The one who, well, I was mentioning, he went to Cuba and Peru. Um, they were not native southerners and, um, they had to depend on, you know, supporting themselves and they saw what was going on and left the south. Although Carrie Holt lost a lot of her money that she had saved because she had it in Confederate banks. Um, but, uh, the women who stayed uh, Sophie Sosnowski um, was a woman who took over the running of the famous South Carolina Female Institute at Barnville, Female Collegiate Institute at Barenville. Um She and Angelo Torriani, who was an Italian opera director, ran music as long as they could at the school, but they eventually closed the school and had to go elsewhere. A lot of professionals, um, as did a lot of um, people in general, who could get away from the areas of the fighting did. So people who lived in Charleston moved first towards Columbia and then towards say Greenville, South Carolina, moving west away from the action as much as possible. Um, I've worked on Nora Gardner. I've done an article on her, a young woman from Tennessee, who you can almost track the path of the Civil War battles through central Tennessee by where she was moved. And she mot- notates all of this in her binders volume. And we can see her moving about, her parents moving her from school to school to try to keep her safe during the war. There were women who started out the war, uh, rich, elite, who by the end of the war are poor and trying to teach music themselves as a way of making money. And certainly after the war, a lot of women who never expected to be um, working were not brought up to work. By the end of the war, shortly thereafter, find themselves working, often as music teachers, to support um, themselves and their families after the war. People's uh, instruments were messed up people's collections were dismantled or burned you know a lot of burning took place particularly in South Carolina um, there, there's just tremendous tremendous upheaval in women's musical practices during the war and yet when you read their accounts they are still trying to preserve as that what they were doing before the war as long as possible so that they're still having, Gatherings; they're still having um, uh, parlor theatricals and that sort of thing. I'm fascinated by this group in Richmond of the really elite of the elite, um, entertaining people like Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis with um, little entertainments that they put on, with backdrops painted by Frank Mazzetti, who's who's a famous painter from the period, and. They 're scraping themselves they're calling themselves things like the Starvation Club, and yet they have costumes they have instruments they are putting on these little musical plays um, or uh, vivant tableau vivant and for entertaining so you know there, there, there's a, a sense of trying to maintain things as much as it had been before the war at the beginning, but by the end of the war, it becomes a tremendous mishmash of this is the way it's supposed to be done. Oh no! This is the way we have to do it now. Um, so we see these kind of blending of what it's supposed to be and what it has to be, particularly during the war.
1: Yeah, I, I, you saw something similar in Mobile too with Mardi Gras. They tried to continue a lot of that stuff as well for as long as they could. And I wonder, like in some of these different, you know, case studies that you've looked at, were they trying to just you know, was it a coping mechanism for, you know, everything that was going on around them? You know, what were some of the, you know, what were they getting out of these practices, you know, put, trying to push through with that, you know?
0: Well, I think for some, um, it certainly was a coping mechanism. Um, I, I, well, the, the north northern people seem to have um, not been as um, horribly displaced emotionally as, as much I, I mean maybe I shouldn't say that but um the music doesn't event a the same amount of trauma I think that that we right going through the south and um so we see women who are um trying to still you know keep up their piano practice and um for some it must have been a way of just getting their mind off something else or a way of getting um, away from the chores that they're finding themselves having to do that they had not had to do before. Right. That is particularly in the wealthier homes where, I don't know if you've seen Cold Mountain, but um, women who are not used to having to to do a lot of the manual labor end up having to do manual labor. But there are also yeah. women who, who don't have it so badly, who, who don't have it so bad. They, they are able to, to kind of maintain Things the way it had been before. Um, not, I don't think anyone was untouched by the war. It just depends on who you were, where you were, and how your uh, parents had their money. Those who had, um, investments in Europe fared much better than those who did, who had, you know, everything based in the southern economy. Those people obviously lost everything or most of everything but those people who had invested elsewhere were able to after the war recoup much quicker um but i think there was also a sense of you know if we if you think about what, what we do in the evening you know maybe we binge watch netflix something and there's nothing to do i mean music provided entertainment um for people as a as something to you know pass the time. And people have to pass the time, you know, even during the war, the war wasn't everywhere all the time as far as battle and and danger. Um, So when people finished in the evenings, there was still, you know, time for dancing and courting and um, entertaining each other. You know, women danced with each other. This was not an uncommon occurrence and uh, people would still, maintain those sorts of activities. And there were also a lot of fundraisers. And that was a way that women got involved um, in in still you know, showing off their, their musical um, education. They could perform in benefit concerts. They um, went and attended benefit concerts so they could hear things. So uh, there were professional performers who stayed in the South and still um, put on concerts as well. So. There was a lot of music making that still went on. Um, I think we, when we think of the Civil War, we, we think of the men in the battlefields. You could do movies like Gods and Generals and Gettysburg, but there was, you know, there there were still women at home in their parlors, or if they refugee, which means they, they left where they were and went to places like Texas, um, many carried their music with them, and a lot of the same practices went on. If you look at the um, concert programs from the benefit concerts, it's the same repertory they were singing in 1858, that you see in
1: 1863. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah,
0: you know, it's still a
1: lot of, of opera
0: and then the same popular songs. Um, so I think you know, it's not what we have necessarily assumed it to be and it's yeah. all, and it's not. You
1: know. Yeah, that helps thanks for clarifying that. I was just kind of interested in, you know, this the social life of all that. And I think that definitely shed a lot um, a lot of light on that. And then finally, going a little bit further forward, uh, chronologically here, you know, in part five you start looking at the reconstruction period. Um, so what do we see start to shift if or what did not shift even, I guess. In terms of the expectations and values of Southern women's music making after the war?
0: The Reconstruction is complicated. Uh, this is the first time I have allowed myself to go into the Reconstruction. Um, you know, people don't even, you know, you can, when does it end? Does it end in 78? Does it end? You know, lots of people uh, argue about when it even ends. So it's a very difficult time. if we remember during the reconstruction, most of the southern states were occupied by federal forces and this is when we start to see black legislatures being elected um, and uh, during while the federal forces are there and then, of course, when the federal forces leave, things change drastically again, and this is when we start getting Jim Crow laws and um lots of uh, very ugly uh, scenes in Southern history. And women have to kind of juggle this um, change in society's uh, valuation of, you know, women who were previously respected just because their fathers were rich white planters. Well, they they don't necessarily hold that status. After the war. Um, but yet they hold that, they hold the status perhaps culturally, if not economically. And so that introduces a lot of tension between um, those who are making money after the war and those who are not making money and having to do things like teach when they had not planned to. Teach. They were not raised to have to work. But it also allowed women, um, the Civil War demanded that women take on new roles in which they had to do things that had been men's purview before the war. And there were women who uh, grasped this as an opportunity to establish themselves as a somewhat independent. Um, person rather than just the wife of the person who's doing something and so women start to make a much larger imprint on civic um, production civic uh, music um, civic life in the cities uh, women leave home and go to school to study with the intention of becoming a teacher in much greater numbers than they had before. So we see, I think, significant shifts in the way women thought about what they could do and how the public perceives um, them doing it. It becomes much more acceptable for women to earn money than it did uh, 20 years earlier.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, And of course, I assume... You see those effects, of course, continuing to the 20th century um, as well, of course. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, you're right. It is kind of a complicated period. And I think it's really interesting that you kind of went chronologically, I guess, in terms of the order of the book. But yeah, like you were saying, you it's also sort of like thematic at the same time. So I was really impressed how you navigated this <laughs> research <laughs> and all <Thank> that. <laughs>
0: yeah well, i mean I think you have to you have to see the practice in relation you you can't talk about the south throughout the nineteenth century and not look at the civil war and the reconstruction for um,
1: sure
0: that colored everything that happens um it really and and, and i think women's um, culture in this period uh women historians of women's culture recognize this I'm not sure. That um, people who don't specialize in that are as uh, keen or as aware of all the, the challenges and the impact these things had on so many um, aspects of women's history, and of course, women's history is part of history. So, you
1: know,
0: it should inform the general history as well.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bailey, for talking with us on New Books and Music. Um, wanted to ask, what other projects are you working on right now? Well, I'm working on this database project, and
0: I'm also working on um, a couple of... Um, I'm, I'm trying to find out more about uh, Black women and um, other uh, women of color in New Orleans, particularly Um, In education, I have uncovered the names of several women who were um, involved in teaching in New Orleans before the Civil War, and I want to investigate their lives more. I am working on the ideas of microhistory as a way to look at women and music in the North and South. I've got um, potential book in mind, looking at uh, X number of women and the music collection, their music collections, all of which happened in the 50, 60s, and what this tells us about women's culture throughout the country um, in this period, and, and how we might read uh, this as a, as a part of music history in the U.S. And I'm also working with some people, um, some scholars in Central and South America, um, just beginning to start on a project where we look at how music in um, New Orleans, perhaps Mobile, other areas in the the south of the south, um, connected with women's musical cultures in the southern part of the hemisphere, and how that differs from what is going on in the northeast of the U S you know, connections between New Orleans and Cuba and Santiago and Buenos Aires and so forth, uh, because there are some commonalities that stand out. And, but that's just beginning of that project.
1: Yeah. That sounds like you have all kinds of exciting things that I will definitely be looking forward to hearing more about. So keep us posted again. (laughs) Thank you so much for chatting with us today.
0: Thank you very much. I'm so happy to be able to talk about my book here.
1: Yeah. And uh, listeners, just as a recap, uh, this was an interview with Dr. Candace Bailey, author of Unbinding Gentility Women Making Music in the 19th Century South, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2021. And this is Emily Allen, and I'll catch you next time here on the New Books Network.